We'll be reading from verses 19 through 24. If you are using the Black Pew Bibles, uh, please turn to uh, page 1540, 1540. Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Uh, In honor of God's word, would you please rise? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in, light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Father, thank you for your perfect word, the truth that is found here, how relevant it is to us, how authoritative it is over our lives. Lord, we want to submit to you and to your word. So Lord, do a work by your spirit, convicting where conviction needs to be, bringing comfort where there needs comfort, a challenge If we need to be challenged as your people, speak to us, O Lord. Teach us, mold us, shape us by the truth of your scripture. We pray all this for your glory and in your name. Amen. I think it's become more apparent to me that we are truly living in a both-and type of world versus an either-or kind of world. What I mean is that a lot of people today are going to resist binary options. They don't like being limited to just two choices where you're either this or you're that. They would rather be both and. At the same time, they'd actually want to broaden their their number of choices so that they are actually both this and that and that and that and that. And that's what makes, I think, the Sermon on the Mount so radically countercultural. Because what Jesus begins to do, starting in today's passage, is really to whittle down the options for us into categories of just two. There are only two places to store up your treasure, heaven or earth. Everyone, we're told, has two kinds of eyes, healthy or bad which fills you with either light or darkness. And everyone serves either God or money or mammon. And then in chapter 7, Jesus speaks of there being only two gates for us to go through. One is wide and easy, leading to destruction, versus the other, which is narrow and hard, but leading to life. And then there are two kinds of people. They're either a healthy tree that bears good fruit or they're a diseased tree that bears bad fruit. 
And finally, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there are two foundations upon which you can build up a life on the rock which can withstand the coming storms or on the sand which will wash away you and your everything when the storms come. That's, friends, how Jesus viewed reality in binary terms. Your life is built either on this or that foundation. You're either like this tree or that one. You serve this God or that God. You're either building up your nest egg here or there. It's very either or. Apparently, Jesus is very comfortable with a binary view of reality. And so if you're going to take him seriously, you really have to take seriously his binary worldview and to seriously figure out where you fit within that picture. On which side of the fence do you land? Because there's, there's, there's no neutral observers on the sideline here. There are only two teams, and Jesus is on one of them. So which are you on? I, I know that that's a very awkward, very socially inappropriate question to ask in polite company, but Jesus says, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. Listen to the Jesus' words again. Whoever is not with me is against me. So he doesn't allow for neutrality. If you read accounts of people encountering Jesus in the Gospels, you see them either falling at his feet in worship or gnashing their teeth in anger. No one just stands back. No, no one just, just stands from afar watching from the sidelines. Everyone has an opinion of him. Everyone is either with him or you're against him. So again, the question is, where do you stand? Where do you stand in relation to Jesus? Now, in this morning's text, the choice, not surprisingly, does come down to two options. There are two treasures, two visions, and two masters, and they're all interconnected because where you lay up your treasure is largely determined by the health of your eyes, by the clarity of your vision. And that clarity is ultimately going to be dictated by who you're serving, God or money. Now, if you're still wondering if, if today's sermon really has anything to do with you and your life, just ask yourself a very simple question. Do I ever worry about money? Do I ever stay up at night concerned with money issues? Do money issues cause fights with my spouse? Are you anxious over your investments, over your financial future, over what you will eat or drink or what you will wear? Because that's the connection with the next section of the sermon in verse 25. Look in verse 25. There's the word, therefore. That starts verse 25, and it suggests that all the anxieties that we face in life, they are rooted, friends, in this binary choice between our treasures, our visions, and our masters. 
And so what I want to do is to walk through our text this morning to explain to you three universal laws that apply to all of us. It applies to all of humanity. And I think you're going to begin to see the wisdom and really the clarity of Jesus' very binary point of view. So if you want to follow along, pull out the outline in your bulletin, and those three universal laws are listed there. Let me say them to you now, and then we're going to consider each in detail. So first, first universal law is that everyone invests their treasure somewhere. Secondly, everyone has eyes captured by something. And third, everyone bows down and serves somebody. We're dealing with two treasures, two visions, two masters. So let's begin with the first law. The first law that says everyone is an investor. We all have treasure of some sort, and we all invest our treasure somewhere. Look at verse 19 with me again. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now, it's important right off the bat that that we don't limit the idea of a treasure on earth to simply money alone. Now, money, of course, was most likely in view here. I mean, the passage does go on to speak of uh, of either serving God or or money. Uh, The literal word there in verse 24 is mammon. Mammon is just the Aramaic uh, term for riches, for wealth. Uh, Aramaic was a language, a spoken language of Jesus. Uh, but what's written before you, uh, what was written down in Matthew's gospel was um, mostly in Greek, but here it keeps the, the uh, Aramaic term mammon. So mammon is to be interpreted more broadly than just cash, you know, just um, a mon- uh, 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 money itself. It could include anything that money can buy. And actually, you can go further than that. Your earthly treasure could be a valuable possession of yours, but it could also be something that's of little monetary worth. But to you, it means everything. It doesn't even have to be a material object. Your treasure on earth could be, let's say, the the, the praise of man. Your treasure on earth could be a position of power, a dream job, a lifelong ambition, a desired relationship. You just ask yourself, what are the earthly treasures that vie for my heart? Who or what is everything to me so that if I were to actually lose it, I I would in some sense lose a a sense of identity, a a sense of, of purpose in life. What could that be? However you answer, those are the treasures that we are warned not to lay up on earth. Now, notice with me as well that Jesus did not say, do not treasure treasures. The problem here is not that we treasure these earthly things or these earthly ambitions, these earthly relationships. You know, that, that's probably more of a, of a Buddhist diagnosis of of what the problem is, a more Eastern religion kind of diagnosis, that the problem is you treasure too much, you desire things too much. They would say it's selfish to treasure treasures. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He doesn't say 
that the problem is that we're being selfish. No, the problem is we're being foolish. His condemnation is not that we are, are, are looking out for ourselves. It's that we're not looking out for ourselves well enough. It's like what C.S. Lewis described in his sermon, The Weight of Glory. He says the Lord doesn't find our desires too strong, but in fact they're too weak. He says this, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We're too easily pleased by the accumulation of earthly treasures. We are too easily satisfied by our ambitions to be rich or to simply be comfortable and secure. For us, it's often enough. It's, it's just enough. If we can get our hands on that power, on that status, on that dream job, that dream family, Jesus' point is that we are making really bad investments here. That's how he argues in verse 19. He gives two reasons why this is a bad investment, why we should stop laying up treasures on earth. On one hand, he stresses the perishability of earthly treasure, and on the other hand, the insecurity. So he says eventually moth and rust are going to destroy. That's the perishability. And then thieves are going to break in and steal the insecurity. So his, his warning, friends, notice, is not that you might lose your earthly treasure, so that's why you shouldn't store it up there. No, he says you will always lose your earthly treasures. There is an inevitability about losing these things. Proverbs chapter 23, verses 4 to 5, paint a very good picture of this. It says there, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings and flying like an eagle toward heaven. So just think about that thing that you own that you're so possessive of, that you are so protective of, and just picture that house or that car or those clothes or that smartphone sprouting wings and flying away from you because one day, in a sense, that is exactly what it's going to do. Whatever earthly treasure that you are gripping onto so tightly today, you can be sure is going to break down, it's going to wear down, it'll soon be obsolete, it will fall out of fashion, or you will just tire of it. And even if, even if you manage to preserve that treasure all through your life, you can't take it with you into the next. Like they say, there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. Death, my friends, is the ultimate thief who comes and steals away all earthly goods. Listen to Psalm 49, verse 17. When the rich man dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. So bottom line, treasures laid up on earth will either perish 
or they will be left behind. You can't take it with you. So not investing your treasures on earth is not just the right thing to do. Jesus' point is that it is the smart thing to do. Look at the smart investor with the smart investment in verse 20. Look in verse 20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So unlike on earth, treasures in heaven, they never perish. And when you die, you don't leave them behind. They're actually going to be waiting for you when you arrive in heaven. Randy Alcorn calls this the treasure principle. And in his book, uh, by the same name, The Treasure Principle, he describes the biblical principle like this. He says, you can't take treasures with you, but you can send them on ahead. You can't take treasures with you, but you can send them on ahead. And so, friends, instead of being anxious about how to accumulate and to secure treasures on earth, we should be figuring out how do we send them on ahead? How do we lay them up for us in heaven? Now, Jesus doesn't explain specifically what these treasures in heaven are, and he he doesn't elaborate on how you actually lay them up in heaven But if you turn to the Apostle Paul, I think he helps identify these things for us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. So if you want to turn there with me, 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 17 to verse 19. And I'll read that for us. 1 Timothy 6, 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So I think that passage right there helps us to understand how we can lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Listen again very carefully. We are to, it says, to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. So to store up treasure in heaven is to devote your time and your energy, your heart, to any good work here on earth whose effects are going to last into the future for eternity. And so really, the distinction between these two types of treasures is not between on earth or in heaven. It's not really uh, referring there to the location, the spatial location of your treasures, but really it's a reference to the quality of that kind of treasure, whether it's perishable or imperishable, whether it's temporary or if it's going to last forever. And so just think about what's going to last. The Bible tells us, the Bible identifies three things that will last forever. You've got God, God's Word, and people made in the image of God. Those are really the three things that will last into eternity. 
And so if you're devoting significant time and energy to your relationship with God, to your knowledge of his word, well, friends, you are laying up for yourself treasures in heaven. Because if the future age is all going to be about enjoying a perfect, uninhibited communion with God himself, then it makes total sense to say that any time spent on earth with him now, in his word now, is storing up, it is preparing you for an even greater experience of that communion when you do get to heaven. And the same goes for your relationships with people. If you are going to share eternity with the people of God, well, then investing in those relationships right now makes complete sense. Investing in the lives of your fellow church members, it has eternal value. And if you are convinced that only those who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, only those are going to be the ones going to heaven, well, then it is a very wise investment of your resources to put those resources towards the good work of gospel work. Whether that means you, you are giving of your own efforts and energy to share the gospel or you are giving financially to support the gospel work of others. That really makes me think of Jesus' parable of the shrewd steward, the shrewd servant. And that, that's, that's that parable where he says that you are to invest your earthly treasures in such a way that when you arrive in glory, all those who are benefited by your earthly treasures will be waiting for you to welcome you. That's what laying up treasures in heaven is all about. You are laying it up in the form of relationships, eternal relationships. So friends, what are you investing in? All of us are investors, and we're investing our money, our time, our energy, our resources into something. Are you making the wise decision? Are you investing in what's going to last for eternity or are you far too easily pleased with making mud pies in the slum? Now, I know we haven't looked at verse 21 yet. Verse 21 where it says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I, I, I'm saving it for this next se section of the passage because I think it better relates to our second universal law. So this is our second point here. This universal law says, it's, it says, everyone has eyes that are captured by something. There's a transition happening in verse 22 where it goes from two types of treasures to two types of conditions describing you, where the healthiness of your eyes is used as a metaphor of the healthiness of your, of your whole body. So look in verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. So I think verse 21 is really what bridges these two sections here. So look there again. Verse 21, it says, it says our treasures don't follow our heart, but rather our heart follows our treasures. So what that means is that whatever, whatever has captured your attention, whatever your eyes are fixed on, earthly treasures or heavenly, there your heart will be also. That means 
there, when it's talking about your heart more than just your emotions, the heart was biblically understood to be really the, the control center of your life. It's talking about your, your, your whole being. And so the point is this. The point is this, friends. Whatever you're treasuring will have your heart also. It will control the entire course of your life. Or, or let's use the eyes metaphor. Whatever has your eyes has your heart. Whatever your eyes are captured by will affect the whole of your life. And so if your eyes are captured by earthly treasures, if your spiritual vision is clouded by the love of money, well, then it's no wonder if your life is shrouded in darkness. I mean, just think about it. If you're anxious about your life, if the path before you is very cloudy and unclear, if you lack a clear purpose in life, if you feel stuck right now, if you feel stuck in the rat race, your life is just like this one big cycle going around and around, and you're wondering, what is it all about? All of that darkness, all of that cloudiness can be explained by the fact that you have allowed your eyes to be fixed, to be captured by earthly treasures. I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Now, if... By God's grace, your spiritual vision has been corrected. If by God's grace, your eyes are now fixed on eternal things, if they're set not only on things below, but things above, well, that, my friends, offers you a unique simplicity to your life. There's a clarity to your life now because it's been filled with light. Your life is filled with God's light, a healthy vision. A healthy spiritual vision puts earthly treasures, which, you know, I'm talking about the earthly treasures that are good in and of themselves, or maybe they're just morally neutral. It puts those treasures in proper perspective, in proper priority. If my life comes down to just knowing Jesus and to making him known, if that's what it's all about, if that's what I'm living for, because I know that is the eternal purpose of what I'm, I'm here to do, know Jesus, to make him known, well, then that equips me to enjoy the things in this world with proper perspective and in proper proportion. So what, my friends, have you allowed your eyes to be captured by? What's usually the last thought on your mind before you fall asleep or, or the first thought that you have in the morning? What are you always daydreaming about? What are you known for always talking about? What do your friends rib you about? Because you're always talking about this one thing. You know, I, I hear Christians say that, that they know that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. They know they shouldn't be living for a paycheck. They shouldn't be living for the weekends. They shouldn't be living for mindless entertainment. They know it's not all about making money and then securing that money. They know that life is about so much more. I've had these conversations where, where they tell me that they were once, you know, back in the day, so passionate for ministry, for missions, for sharing the gospel, for serving the church. They had a huge heart for these things. They had a huge heart for the poor and the needy. But that was then... And this is now. 
and they just don't feel it anymore. They've kind of lost the passion. They've, they've lost the heart, and they don't know how to get it back. They, they don't know what to do to recover that passion. Friends, do you see that Jesus tells us exactly how to get it back right here? There are two universal laws to consider. And so ask yourself, what are my eyes consistently captured by? And where am I investing my treasures? Because whatever has your eyes has your heart, your passions. Wherever your, your treasure is, there your heart, there your passion is also. And so, so do you want to recover that heart for missions that you used to have so long ago? Then put more of your money in missions and set your eyes on a good biography of a missionary. Let me just recommend, if you, if you don't know what biography to read, I'll recommend two. Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret and To the Golden Shores, the life of Adoniram Judson. Two good biographies. Set your eyes on those. Start doing those things and just watch. Just watch how your heart is going to follow. If you want to regain that passion that you once have, that, once, that you once had in serving the church, you were once so committed, but life got busy. Other priorities popped up. How do you get that passion back for church ministry? You give generously to the local church, and you set your eyes on the ministry, ministry needs of others in the church, not just your own, not just the needs of your own life or your own family. You start doing that and just watch how your heart inevitably follows. And the same goes if you want to have a huge heart for the poor or the needy. Donate more of your money to ministries that are serving the poor and then go and set your eyes on real people with real needs. I mean, go and meet them. Go and spend time with them and you will be surprised how quickly your heart follows and expands in compassion towards the poor. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Invest your treasure there. Set your eyes there. Your heart will follow. So the first law is that everyone is an investor investing their treasure somewhere. The second law is that everyone has eyes captured by something. And depending on where you lay up that treasure and what your eyes are fixed on, your life, your heart is going to go one direction or the other. Now, in that choice between two treasures, you know, where we lay them up, and two visions— what we fix our eyes on is a choice between two masters whom we are going to serve. And that leads to our third universal law in the text, and it says that everyone bows down and serves somebody. And whom you serve is really what determines where your treasures are invested and what your eyes are captured by. And so this is the most important law of the three. So let's read it again in verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, you can serve two employers, right? You can have two jobs. People do that. But it's different when you're dealing with masters. 
Your service and your allegiance to a master is all-encompassing. And so there's no way you can serve two masters at the same time. That's why Jesus says you can't serve God and money. You're going to end up using one as a tool to serve the other. I think it's so sad and yet so common for people to serve and worship God not as an end in itself, but as a means to another end. That's where I worship God. I, I, I serve God. I serve and give to his church with the hope that he's going to bless me with greater health or wealth. But God is no fool. And he's no tool. And he knows when we're treating him like one. The fact is, money is the tool Money was never meant by God to be a master over humanity. Money was given to us to be our servant. Our true master gave us money to be used as a tool so that we can wield that tool in service of our heavenly aims for our heavenly joy. God, my friends, is our one and only master. And so that means all of my money all of my earthly treasure belongs ultimately to him. I mean, if you really think about it, I don't truly own anything. You don't own anything. Everything that we have has been entrusted to us, to our care, by the one true owner. And that's why I think we, we really shouldn't make any distinctions, whether in our pocketbook or in our bank account between God's portion and my portion. That kind of thinking, I think, is very unhealthy. Where you treat a percentage of your net worth as God's portion, which you give to him as an offering, and then the rest you treat as your own, which you are going to spend and invest in however you please. Once you embrace that kind of thinking, once you have that kind of distinction in your mind about your earthly treasures, I tell you, friends, God's portion is always at risk of shrinking. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells this great story about a farmer who one day comes home and he reports to his family that their best cow has given birth to twin calves, one red, one white. And he said to them, I feel that we ought to dedicate one of these calves to the Lord. Let's raise both of them, and when the time comes, we're going to sell one and keep the money, but we're going to sell the other, and we're going to give all the money to the Lord and to his work. And so his wife asked him, okay, which one do you plan to dedicate to the Lord, the red one or the white one? And he replied, well, there's no need to bother about that now. We'll just raise them up equally, and when the time comes, we'll decide. Well, a few months later, the man comes home looking miserable. His wife asked, what happened? I have bad news, he said. The Lord's calf is dead. But, she said, I, I, I thought you hadn't decided which one is to be the Lord's. Oh, he replied, I, I've always decided it was going to be the white one, and it's the white one that died. Sorry. But the Lord's calf is dead. And Lloyd-Jones's point here is that it's always the Lord's calf that dies. When money is tight, 
when the market is down, when the economy is bad, the first thing that goes, the first thing that dies is always God's portion. The first thing we cut back on is our contribution to God's work, to the kind of work that's going to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And then we, in turn, start investing only in treasures on earth. And when that happens, that happens if we keep thinking of money as our money, even if it's just a portion of it, if we think it's actually ours. But friends, it's not your money. It's not my money. It's God's money because God alone is the master. He is our master. And so when we give, friends, an offering to the Lord, we're not giving him his portion. We're not paying our dues. We're worshiping. We're giving God what's rightfully his, and in so doing, we are telling him, we're telling ourselves, we are telling the entire world who truly is our master. That's really the thinking behind the idea that I brought up last week, where I, I said last week that we're, we're thinking of eventually incorporating an offertory within this worship service. And the goal, really, of doing that is to reserve a special moment within our worship where we together can proclaim that money is not our master, that money is a tool. Money is just a tool that our master has given to us that we therefore might invest in treasures in heaven. And so I, I want to encourage you. I, I want to encourage especially those of you who aren't regularly giving to the Lord. I want to encourage you to make a change, to make a start. But of course, you're going to need to have the right heart, the right motives, which really can only be found in one thing. And that thing is the good news of what Jesus has done for you. The gospel is the good news about our Lord Jesus Christ, who was rich, yet became poor for our sake so that by his poverty we might become rich. He gave of himself. He gave all of himself upon the cross, dying in your place, receiving the justice that you deserve, that he might shower you with his grace. The good news of the gospel is that those who recognize that they are actually poor in spirit, who humble themselves, who confess that they have nothing good to offer God to earn his favor, they are the ones we were told back in the Beatitudes, they're the ones who receive the kingdom. They're the ones who are called sons and daughters of the God Most High. I mean, really, in fact, one of the major themes of this section in the Sermon on the Mount is the relationship that Christians have with God as their Father. In chapter 6 alone, there are 10 references to God as your Father. I mean, just look right before our passage. Look in verse 18. There's a reference there. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. So friends, it would be a terrible mistake to go on and read verses 19 to 24 apart from this father-child relationship that we have with God that is only made possible by Jesus. If God, the one and only master, is also your one and only father in heaven, 
then why do you fear? Why are you anxious about what you will eat or what you will drink or what about your body and what you will put on? If God is your father, why do you fear that you're not going to have enough for yourself or for your family if you start regularly giving to his work? If the gospel sinks in for you, then you're truly free. You're, you're, you're free to seek first your father's kingdom and his righteousness. You are free to invest your money on treasures in heaven and not on treasures on earth. You are enabled to freely and generously give because you have a trust in your heavenly father to give you your daily bread and to take care of satisfying your daily needs. That's what the gospel can do for you. Having God as your Father through Jesus Christ, His Son, is going to free you to be able to give. Let me pray for you. Father, I, I do pray 